A word of warning. This podcast explores graphic and disturbing stories and includes some strong language. It therefore may not be suitable for our young listeners or other folks who may find it disturbing. Hello and welcome to True Crime Daily, the podcast covering high-profile and under-the-radar cases from across the country every week. I'm your host, Anna Garcia. We are recording this on Wednesday, October 13th, 2021. Our guest today is Atlanta-based criminal defense attorney, Gerald Griggs, who is a friend of the show. Welcome back, Gerald. Thank you for having me, Anna. It's always a pleasure. Oh, I think your phone is ringing. You may need to get that. always busy in this office. You know what? That's what I love about this podcast. <laughs> Phones ring, dogs bark. <laughs> All righty. Let's get to our cases this week. They center on two missing women, a New Jersey woman on a cross-country adventure to California following her dream to become a chef went missing in June in the Coachella Valley. Now local authorities announced that there's been a gruesome discovery, but is it related to the Lauren Cho case? We don't know yet, but there's a lot to talk about this case because Lauren's case received much needed national attention in response to the disappearance and then murder of Gabby Petito, who was on a cross-country trip herself. And and that case really galvanized uh, many people, especially those who are defenders of survivors and of the missing and of the murdered, who said, you know what? Yes, let's help Gabby's family, but what about all the other families? And so um, we've seen a lot of cases, Gerald, that um, have been solved, or at least the person has been found in the weeks since that because of the amount of attention that's been placed on these cases. So I think that's very important. We're going to talk about that. But first, a Missouri woman is still missing after disappearing in July. The man that she was reportedly staying with claims that Cassidy Rainwater drove off in the middle of the night with a stranger. And that is the last that he saw of her, which of course, Gerald, we know that's a very suspicious story. It already begins suspicious. The man that she was staying with and his friend are now behind bars. They're being held on suspicion of kidnapping Cassidy because authorities allegedly found incriminating evidence on a phone. And just hours before the two men were to appear in court, one of their houses burns down. The house where she was allegedly being kept in a cage. This all came about because once she went missing, Gerald, the FBI contacted the local authorities in Missouri and said, is this your missing woman? Because they had flagged this photo. I mean, any woman in a cage is, you know, obviously very, very concerning. So what happens in a case like this where we still don't have a body, The two are charged with kidnapping. We're going to get into the details in a minute, but, you know, it it feels like it's still early on in, in, in the case. What, what do you think, Gerald? Yes, definitely still very early on in the case. Um, Anytime that you have a case that centers around a huge missing piece of evidence, the investigation is still ongoing. So uh, I'm assuming that law enforcement would still be trying to follow all the leads and would also be trying to work with the defense attorney to coax the client into uh, giving some piece of, of evidence in exchange for a testimony and a lower charge. So I anticipate that's probably what's happening here. It's always concerning when a massive piece of evidence uh, magically disappears, like being burnt to the ground, when you still have a missing uh, victim, as well as the evidence 
of that victim uh, being held against her will. So it's going to be difficult to prove that kidnapping if you don't have uh, a body or a person or a witness or anything else. You can use the photo, uh, but an argument can always be made, be made that the photo was some type of play acting. It wasn't real. Uh, it was contrived. There's a lot of different arguments that you can make about a photo. That's why you need hard, concrete evidence. Yeah, the timing is is the part that really troubles me. I mean, these two uh, suspects who have been charged were literally hours, uh, the house burned down hours before they were supposed to appear in court on this case. And I say this all the time. I, when it comes to crime, I just don't believe in coincidence. And, and we will get into the fact that this wasn't just, you know, a furnace that blew up. We're, we're going to get into the details of that. Okay, so um, this case is taking place in Dallas County, Missouri, which is in South Central Missouri. And it's about three hours from St. Louis to give everybody an idea of what we're talking about. 33-year-old Cassidy Rainwater was supposedly last seen a few months ago on July 25th. And again, trying to come come up with concrete dates on when someone is last seen, as we've we've learned very recently in a very vivid way through the Gabby Petito case, can be very challenging because sometimes you literally have to scrub social media to be able to figure this out because you're relying on those who are still present to tell you presumably the truth. And we don't know that. We just don't know that. The last person to have seen her alive is 58-year-old James Phelps. Cassidy was staying with James Phelps in his home in Windyville. And he said that Cassidy had gotten up in the middle of the night and left. And he says that's the last time that he saw her. So a month later in August, Cassidy's family members contacted the Dallas County Sheriff's Office to report her missing. And that's at about the same time that the FBI gets this really weird anonymous tip. And it involves this photograph supposedly showing Cassidy Rainwater partially nude, locked in a cage. So they send the information over to the Dallas County Sheriff's Office. Investigators pay a visit to James Phelps at his home, and they are armed with a search warrant. They check the place, and James explains that Cassidy was staying him until she could get back on her feet. So that's what she was doing there. But apparently... Gerald, she was uh, living, I'm not going to go so far as to say being kept, in a loft area. And Phelps shares with authorities, but she was talking about going to Colorado. So I, I always think that's one of those, like, she went this way, you know, in opposite directions. KOLR reports that the detective noticed that the loft on the property looked like it had been stripped, and he didn't notice any belongings of Cassidy's at the time. And that was where she was living. So there was no sign of her. Do you find that suspicious, Gerald? I definitely find that suspicious. I mean, if somebody was living there, there should be some evidence of their previous occupancy in, in that particular living space. So it's very interesting, especially that it's been stripped. And then uh, the potential suspect or the homeowner is saying they've gone in a different direction. You know, there should be some evidence of that. I mean, I'm sure Cassidy wasn't just living um, with by, by cash. So there should be some type of uh, monetary trail, credit cards, uh, some type of social media posting, some type of phone conversation between her and her relatives, something that indicates one, that she lived there and two, that she had left. Uh, so that's very concerning and very suspicious. So the Kansas City Star describes the property as a small cabin and a shack. 
And then as part of the search warrant, because the search warrant was pretty specific, not only to the house, but to electronic devices, they asked to search his phone. And according to authorities, they say they found seven photos of Cassidy Rainwater. Now, the court records say that the detectives describe these photos as being partially nude and once again in a cage, apparently in that house. So it gets us back to, was she willingly playing with him or, or was she being held against her will? I think as we continue to give you some of the details that have emerged, it sounds like she was being held against her will based on the following charges. So James is arrested and he is charged with kidnapping. Days later, a friend of Phelps is also arrested after telling detectives that he helped to restrain Cassidy. So now you have the second suspect saying his story is, well, the story changed. At first, you know, he had nothing to do with it. And then by the time authorities go back to him a second day, he allegedly tells them that, yes, he helped to hold her down. So that is now starting to sound incredibly violent and incredibly frightening especially with them photographing it. But I know you said, Gerald, that, you know, sometimes you cannot determine the validity of a photograph. But now as these details are emerging, it's sounding more like that's going to be the evidence and the proof. Yeah, exactly. It sounds that way. And what authorities are going to need to do is to make sure they lock in the testimony of the other suspect. And that's why it's important to to, you know, of course, separate them and then to treat each case differently because you're going to need that evidence of restraining, uh, that evidence of locking away that only that co-defendant can give that can now corroborate the photo and now give a time and place and validity to the photo. So I think that authorities are going to have to move in that direction if they aren't able to find a body or find the person in life. They're going to need the corroboration of the co-defendant. Uh, to prove their case. On September 19th, investigators interviewed Timothy Norton. This is the other suspect. He's a 56-year-old long-haul truck driver who lives in his car when he's not working. Court records show that he listed James Phelps' home address, the location that burned to the ground, the place where they believe that the cage was and that Cassidy was staying. So he uses that same address. So I don't think it took an awful lot to figure this part out right? It's not a big town. How, how many people are, are connected to this home? Court records then indicate the following, that there were inaccuracies in Norton's story when he was first interviewed, and then again when he was subsequently interviewed. And then finally, that's when he allegedly confesses to helping to restrain Cassidy back in July. So he gives authorities also a time frame, which is pretty much about the time that she disappeared. So Timothy Norton says that he gets a call from his pal James, who says he needs his help restraining a woman in a cage. <laughs> I, I, that's just not the kind of phone call one often gets. So that's his version of events. And he's arrested on the spot when he admits this allegedly admits this. The Kansas City Star reports that Norton admitted that he physically confined Cassidy Rainwater by holding her down for a substantial 
period of time for the purpose of facilitating the commission of a felony or inflicting physical injury on or terrorizing her, according to a sheriff's lieutenant who wrote that up in the probable cause affidavit. What do you think that really means, Gerald? It means that they were restraining her for the purpose of doing some other felony to her, probably kidnapping, probably an assault. Uh, because we don't have a body, it may be more heinous. Uh, but those words were just to um, to kind of portray to the court uh, the gravity of this offense. And, and it's even more concerning, allegedly, that you have this drifter who just happens to be uh, with Mr. Phelps uh, and, and gets a phone call from Mr. Phelps to come help to restrain a young woman whom he probably doesn't know. This doesn't sound like they that they have you know, they, it sounds like they've done this before. Because I mean, who calls your friend to say, hey, I got a woman that I need you to help me restrain and you don't ask any more facts like, hey, who is this woman? Why are you restraining her? Why is she potentially being kept in a cage? This sounds nefarious. You know, a true friend would tell their friend to release the young lady or that friend would call law enforcement to make sure that no crime was being committed. So it's a lot of uh, issues with this case uh, that, that point to nefarious activity. Is it interesting to you, Gerald, that in in the charges and in the description in the court record, we don't have anything of a sexual nature yet? Or is that kind of included in the commission of a felony that they're keeping it vague? Well, I think they're keeping it vague because, you know, you're not entitled to discovery at this point. And of course, the defense attorneys are trying to go through the evidence. So they don't want to put too much out there until they have to turn it over. But it, it sounds like that there's some sort of assault going on, whether it's a sexual assault or a regular aggravated assault. There's some type of assault. And the fact that there's no person or nobody leads me to believe that there may have been a homicide as well. Uh, so, I mean, th these are very um, vague legal terms that need to be fleshed out, and they probably will be fleshed out as we move further and further down the criminal justice process, uh, but it's very concerning, and, and there probably is some sort of uh, physical assault or sexual assault that will be included in these charges. It's so disturbing. It really is frightening. Thank God for that photo, because had that tipster not sent in that photo. And who knows what they were doing with that photo. They could have been sharing it with friends. They could have been selling it. Who knows? This, we would have never even known that this was a possibility. So last week, the night before the two men were scheduled to appear in court, the house that police searched, the house that is allegedly in the background of the photo with the cage that shows Cassidy restrained, which is the residence of James Phelps, the last known place where Cassidy was seen alive, according to James Phelps, burns to the ground, just burns to the ground. Again, like I say, there are just really very few coincidences when it comes to crime. So firefighters find a tripwire in the burned remains. And so the bomb squad and, and those kind of experts are called out to do a forensic examination. The bomb squad discovers there are two incendiary devices, both of which are safely detonated. Yeah, so clearly something goes off, burns down the house, and then looks, I don't know if it was booby-trapped or whether it was 
deliberately set by the person living there. That's the part we don't know. We don't know who set this fire. It certainly appears to be arson. So the question is, who set the fire and for what purposes? What I find very troubling here is that we have to hope that the sheriff's department, when they entered with the search warrant, that they did a lot of their forensic, initial forensic testing. But it's my understanding, and Gerald, please explain the process to me, that sometimes you don't get everything on the first go round. Sometimes you have to go back because you narrow something and you're like, ooh, let's test for that. What do you think? Yeah, sometimes there's uh, the need for additional testing. Uh, sometimes when you go in with the first search warrant, you're trying to just get enough evidence to get an arrest warrant, and you may have to come back for additional uh, evidence collection. And in this case, where we don't have a person or we don't have a victim, there were potentially clues in that house that could point to the location of the victim. So clearly, if this was arson, and it's just an allegation at this point that two incendiary devices burned the house to the ground. So it does seem like it was, you know, intentionally set, allegedly. Mm -hmm. um, it's concerning that you've now lost a large piece of documentary and, and, and uh, you've lost a large piece of, of potential evidence uh, that now cannot be investigated either by the prosecution or by the defense. Because again, these individuals are alleged to have done these things. So they may build a very robust defense that points to, listen, no one was being held against their will. Here's how uh, the, the uh, crawl space looked. This is how a person could have lived here. There's actually no cage. You know, these type of things that you could point to the lack of evidence, but now that evidence is gone. So the police need to do a thorough investigation and get to the bottom of whether this was arson or, or whether this was in fact an accident where these incendiary devices burn the house to the ground. And then the ultimate question, why were there incendiary devices in the house in the first place? All these questions needed need to be answered, but now they can't be answered because the house is burned down. I'm very suspicious because it seems to me that the people benefiting from the this house burning down are the two defendants. This is not helping in Cassidy's case as far as finding her or getting evidence, but it sure is helping the two defendants here without question. House is gone. Good luck trying to get any more evidence. Yeah, it definitely helps the defendants uh, simply because, you know, one of the arguments that the defense counsel can make is the lack of evidence. There's absolutely no evidence of a kidnapping, no evidence of an assault, no evidence of anything. And we don't know where um, this picture really came from. The picture could very well be some type of contrived action, uh, some type of uh, ex uh, issue that could be explained away as not in criminal. These are all things that a criminal defense attorney can do. And the lack of evidence, a lot of the times, is the reason why people walk free. Uh, so it's very concerning. And yes, it does assist uh, the defense more than it would the prosecution. So clearly this case is horrific and Cassidy has not been found yet. And the details are so alarming and disturbing and crazy about a woman allegedly being held in a cage that the rumor mill and internet sleuths have gone into overdrive on this case. So last week, the Dallas County Sheriff released a statement addressing, quote, the fake news, denouncing rumors, and the misinformation that's being spread online and on social media. I want to read to you from the sheriff's statement because 
I think it's really important. And clearly this is a man who sounds very frustrated, but I mean, and it's filled with emotion, but I, I, I think a lot of us will also agree with this. So here's what the sheriff writes. While I understand the impatience and the curiosity of people, I'm going to give you a piece of advice. It is not a good idea to listen to a crime reporter or a blogger or people who make TikTok videos sitting in their apartment or in their mommy and daddy's basement eating great value cheese puffs and drinking box wine with grand intentions of being a social media superstar. If you are hanging on every word of this crap, you are living in a fantasy world. This isn't a TV series or a movie where we go to commercial break and have lab results in 15 minutes. Sheriff Scott Rice. Brilliant. It's brilliantly written. Um, It's very descriptive. I think the sheriff was very um, disturbed by many of the things that are happening online. And I can understand his level of frustration uh, because, you know, the criminal justice system and the criminal justice process is very long and it can be very drawn out. And people need to understand this is not law and order. Uh, it's not made for podcasts, uh, even though we're on one right now. Yeah. Um, it takes a process. It has to go through the crime lab. It has to go through investigation. There has to be leads. And many times when people go off on their own with these ideas, especially in the internet world, um, you can go down a rabbit hole from which you cannot return. So I understand the level of frustration of the sheriff. I wish he would have said it a little differently because, you know, sometimes cheese puffs and and box wine are good. Um, (laughs) I'm with you. I do understand his level of frustration. I know as I was reading this, I I thought to myself, we've got to get the sheriff on this program and I'm going to send him some cheese puffs. I'm going to send him the really expensive ones. You know, the the pirate booty. (laughs) Those are are really good and pricey. They are very good. But they they leave that that, that, um, film orange on your hands. Yes. (laughs) That might help you catch uh, the potential suspects because you just have cheese puff handprints all over the place. Oh my goodness. But you know what? It is, it is true. Some people go very far. What I love about this podcast is how interactive it is with our listeners and our viewers. And a lot of times they'll ask questions and they'll raise theories. And a lot of times they're like really good questions or theories. It's about the law, about the investigation. I love that interactive nature of it. So I see a value to it, but at the same time, we've also seen the extremes and I, I, I do, I'm glad that the sheriff kind of reminded everyone that no, you can't get lab results this fast. Give us a moment. We're working on it. However, I will say this, Gerald, the fact that that many people care about that case and are pushing and pushing and pushing, I believe that has a value and an energy. I call it the outraged chorus that can push law enforcement prosecutors and remind all of them in the justice system, including judges, they're watching, they want justice, they want answers, and there's a value to that. Yeah, I definitely agree. And I think that people with inside of the criminal justice system needs, need to understand that you still work for the people and the people are demanding justice. Now, nobody wants swift justice because sometimes justice rushed is, is, a, um, is a problem and, and, and it's a travesty of justice. But they also want 
a, a level of competency and a level of work that you know sometimes law enforcement is not ready to do. Yes, you don't get lab results after the commercial break, but sometimes the crime lab is taking entirely too long to do some of these experiments uh, and some of these testing. So I understand that there's a balance here. And I think that they need to understand in the new internet world, people are watching, people are comment commenting, and people sometimes give you the best information and ideas and leads because this is a lot of people's lived experience. They, they may live in that town and say, hey, you might wanna think about going over here because I heard something um, that may lead to a lead that may help solve this case. So they always have to remember uh, that Sometimes it's best to work collaboratively, but yes. also to explain to people that there are professionals who are supposed to do this work. Yeah, I, I really well said, Gerald. Absolutely. I, I think that's the best of both worlds coming together and helping each other. Honestly, Every, we can all witnesses sometimes don't even know that they're witnesses. That's right. They don't know that they've seen something or they heard something. So so that's important to keep these cases in the forefront. Both men have been charged with kidnapping, plus an additional charge of facilitating a felony and inflicting injury and terrorizing. They remain held without bond. The judge has set a preliminary hearing for both men on November 5th. We'll be watching this case Maybe we'll even have Sheriff Rice on. We would love that. Our next case is out of California, where a New Jersey woman traveling cross-country with her boyfriend was reported missing in June. Local authorities this last weekend found human remains in the area where she was last reported seen. Lauren Cho is a 31-year-old Korean-American woman from New Jersey. She was reported missing in California in June. Lauren was staying with friends at an Airbnb rental in Bombay Beach, which is on the Salton Sea. And this is like the desert of Southern California. Now, the Salton Sea is one of these really big man-made lakes, and it's kind of surrounded by no one. Gerald, I mean, I, I can tell you this. I've driven through the Salton Sea, always to and from a crime scene. I just, it's just been my experience. I'm just, I, whenever I hear the Salton Sea, all I think of is, oh, Lord, <laughs> something very bad has happened out there. Um, just, just my personal experience now. Bombay Beach is about an hour and a half southeast of Palm Springs. I do want to add this, though. It is a beautiful and stark area as well. I mean, there's a, it, it is, when you're driving, you have to pull over and look at it. It's one of those kind of places as well. So, But it's very remote is what I really want to impress upon people. It is surrounded by dry, dry desert and mountains. It is just, it's a barren place. So Lauren Cho was a singer and an aspiring chef. In Flemington, New Jersey, she was reportedly teaching music to high schoolers, was in a church choir. She also reportedly worked at a tattoo and piercing parlor, in addition to working on that passion of hers of becoming a chef. A friend of Lauren's told CBS2 in New York that they worked together at that tattoo shop for about a year before Lauren decided she was going to travel across the country, go to California, and just really just have a great life. So this apparently was back in November of 2020. Cho had reportedly bought one of those old school buses 
It sounds like the Partridge family to me. I'm really dating myself. <laughs> um, a, an old school bus converting it into a food truck and was kind of going to live out of it. And that, so she had big plans about what she was going to do. So in the meantime, when she got to California, Cho and a friend had been hosting dinners so they could practice their craft of creating these dinners in the Bombay Beach community. So, you know, fellow residents or people who, you know, are vacationing at the Salton Sea. On June 28th of this year, so just a few months ago, Lauren Cho left the, the rental on foot and she was reportedly upset about something. We don't know what. She was wearing a t-shirt, shorts. She left the house without her phone, without any water, which is very dangerous in this area, as I've described. It's very barren. And she left her belongings. So I think, you know, that initially makes me think, Gerald, okay, she wasn't going anywhere too far. If this is an accurate description of what happened, it sounds like she was just going to go cool off and come back. What do you think? Yeah, it seems like she was going for a short walk. Uh, didn't seem like she was going on any type of extensive journey. And in that type of uh, condition uh, of the land, you don't think somebody would go too far because you don't have a lot of resources to maintain, um, you know, your ability to live. So no water, no food. Uh, it seems like she left um, all of her belongings, meaning her wallet and all that stuff. So she probably was out for a walk to, to get some fresh air. And just to give everyone a point of reference, June in the Salton Sea area, it's easily 115 degrees. It, it is unbelievably hot in the summer. I just think of, just think of like Death Valley. And this is just a, you know, just in another section of the state. So the High Desert Star, which is a local newspaper that's published in the area, reported in July that a friend of Lauren's at the beach house told told the paper that she had just walked into the hills, which is also not an easy thing to do based on that terrain. Lauren Cho's ex-boyfriend, who is reportedly part of the group staying in that rental house, called authorities to report her missing about three hours after she left the house, which is a good thing, as we all know. The longer you wait, the worse it is as far as potential outcomes. So... Um, this is, you know, the, the boyfriend says that he searched the hills, he couldn't find any tracks, and, and describes it this way to uh, the newspaper. It's as if she evaporated, but people don't evaporate. No matter how hot it is, they do not evaporate. The friend told the newspaper that she, on that Sunday, was going to go out to meet someone, wasn't saying who, they didn't want to pry. Of course, now they wish that they had pried. Again, this is a case that received a, it received a lot of local attention, and there were multiple searches in the area for her when she was reported missing. So I don't want people to think that that there wasn't any attention. There was media attention locally, and then there was some in New Jersey and in New York. But again, as we said at the top of the program, when the Gabby Petito case became, you know, the biggest headline, this story was elevated because so many other people started saying, well, wait a minute, this woman of color went missing as well around the same time period, if you will. Why isn't she getting attention? So we have to think, is it possible that based on that, 
that these human remains that were found that have not been identified, we don't know that it is Lauren. I, I do want to say this, Gerald. At the time, when I was doing a lot of research on Gabby's case and on this case, Lauren's family had a Facebook page, obviously in support of trying to find her, which which is what families have to do. They, ha- they have to do it themselves. And, and something very telling is that the family posted a response saying that this case was very different from Gabby's. Family did not elaborate on what that means, but they kept saying this is a different case. Again, I don't know what that means, but I I wanted to make sure that I shared that. The San Bernardino County Sheriff's Department says that Lauren Cho has been missing since June 28th, and that was a Monday, and that she left the residence at 5.10 p.m. That is the last time that she was seen alive. Multiple searches failed to turn anything up, but they did serve a search warrant at the residence They used canines to not only search the residence, but the surrounding area. They did aerial searches and again, no leads until this last weekend where human remains have been found, but we do not know if that is Lauren. So on October 9th, which would have been Saturday, the sheriff's department released this statement. During the search, unidentified human remains were located in the rugged terrain of the open desert of Yucca Valley. The remains were transported to the coroner's division where staff will work to identify and determine cause of death. The identification process could take several weeks. No further information will be released until the identity of the deceased has been confirmed. For a point of reference, Yucca Valley is about an hour and a half north of Bombay Beach. That is what I'm trying to figure out. Like, how does that, it would have been really hard to walk that in this oppressive heat, even though it's cooler at night. Um, I don't, is that possible? I suppose. Or did someone pick her up? Yeah, it's more reasonable to think someone picked her up. I mean, that that's an extensive amount of walking in that type of heat. I mean, it's five o'clock. So, you know, the sun's not down yet. Uh, so it'd still be well over 100 degrees and she has no no water, no food, uh, no personal belongings. Uh, this is very, very strange. And for no one to see her, no one to know what happened, no tracks, uh, no inclinations or, or, or issues where you could see a struggle or car pick somebody up or, I mean, you know, we're, we're in an age now where there are um, potentially video cameras everywhere. You would think in that stretch, even if it's isolated, there would be some type of gas station or something that potentially has a surveillance camera that would have picked up somebody. Um, so I, th- these are all, you know, curious issues. I know that law enforcement and the medical examiner's office have uh, different types of scientific testing they can do to, to confirm somebody's identif- identification, dental records, DNA typing, blood typing, if there was any blood remains or any flesh remains, because there's been a substantial amount of time that's passed in that type of oppressive heat, the deterioration of a body happens very quickly. Uh, so the, these are things that they have to con- be concerned about. I don't know about surveillance cameras, and I'll tell you why. It is such a deserted area. The best description I could give you is that there is, you know, there's the highway where people are going crazy fast, and there may be one convenience store and gas station in the area. And that's 
pretty much it. And then because the heat is so oppressive, you rarely ever see anyone out. And even though we use the term beach, you really can't swim in the Salton Sea because so much of the agriculture runoff has gone in there. It used to be a primary um, migratory area for birds, but it's not anymore. You don't really swim in it. And it also has a foul odor to it. So I, I really want to describe the severity of this place and how remote it is, where honestly, I would not be surprised if most people don't have surveillance cameras. It is that remote an area. That's good to know. It sounds like a desert wasteland. Oh my God, Gerald, it really is. It's a scary place at times. Well, then it, it seems as though there probably is some amount of foul play that happened. Somebody probably picked her up or some animal um, got a hold of her. Uh, and hopefully, you know, they'll be able to have enough of the remains, you know, to do some type of testing to confirm whether or not it is her. Um, but it, this, this really sounds concerning. To be very clear here that Lauren Cho's ex-boyfriend who came out with her to California has always cooperated with the authorities that no one has ever been named a suspect or a person of interest in this case. So we want to make sure that that's clear. We, of course, will follow that case very closely. It is time for our comment section. These are the crime stories you all are talking about. And joining us is our producer and director of web and everything else, Owen Michael. Owen, you have a Nordic sweater on today. <laughs> Hi, Anna. Hi, Gerald. Yes, I do. Uh, as I was uh, just relating to Gerald before we started recording, uh, it dropped below 60 this week in uh, Southern California. So, um, yeah, I'm dressed appropriately. It's uh, basically almost Christmas. Um, <laughs> a Missouri man was trying to sell catalytic converters on Facebook Marketplace about two weeks ago, and he posted a box of the he posted a photo of the box online. That's the um, special component for your vehicle that makes uh, emissions standards and that kind of thing. In the background of the picture, you can see what looks like a big bag of a white crystal substance, a spoon and a syringe on the coffee table. Oh boy! Stone County Sheriff's Office said a concerned citizen alerted authorities. Thank goodness. Wait, Deputy did you Cernan say Stone County? I'm sorry. <laughs> Indeed. Draw your, own, draw your own jokes there. Uh, the Stone County Sheriff's Office said a concerned citizen alerted authorities Deputies served a search warrant at the man's house and for, found uh, 48 grams of methamphetamine and a gun and arrested the man who said he didn't know the drugs were even there. No. Mary M. said, that's why you shouldn't mix business with pleasure. Mary M. Uh, revealing a little bit about uh, her predilections there. <laughs> Johan A. says, uh, that's why I always crop my picks. Johan's yes. uh, going straight to the technicals. Uh, Elise B. says, uh, so can I still get that catalytic converter for my truck? You know, there's a big business, Owen, in stealing catalytic converters. Indeed, there is. Um, in fact, my block uh, a couple of years ago got hit by um, somebody, some thieves that were, were doing that. But, uh, you know, this guy, uh, it appears that he was selling uh, brand new products online in the, uh, on the online marketplace. But, um, yeah, it's a, it's a lesson, A, to either be more careful about uh, what you're posting. And probably the, the larger lesson is uh, stay away from meth. Yeah, I think we can all agree on that. Meth is bad. Don't meth is don't, bad. Uh, don't use meth, and don't sell items online while using meth. Um, 
don't do drugs. Yes. Okay. All right, Owen, we love that. We've got some uh, legal advice on top of everything else. That's right. We'll, and we'll just have to remind Stone County about that. Indeed. Mm-hmm. See you guys next week. <laughs> Bye, Owen. That is our program for this week. Gerald, thank you so much for coming on. Always such a pleasure. If people want to follow you because you're very active on social media, where can people find you? You can find me on all social platforms at Attorney Griggs or Attorney Gerald Griggs on all platforms at Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, Twitter. And now I am on TikTok at Attorney Griggs. You know what Sheriff Rice is going to say about that. <laughs> going to have box wine. Catch your cheese, cheese puffs. puffs ready. Yes. <laughs> Thanks, Gerald. It is always a pleasure. You can find me at Anna G News, Anna with one N. Of course, you know where to find our content wherever you get your podcasts. Of course, you can watch us on YouTube. Subscribe to our YouTube channel. Be one of the millions who subscribe to our channel and sign up to receive our newsletter at truecrimedaily.com, which is put together by Owen. So until next week, I'm your host, Anna Garcia. And as we always say, don't do crime. Don't do meth. Yes, and don't do meth.